You hearing me okay? Hello, hello. There we go. Hey, morning. We are in week four of our series on Moses and the story of the Exodus. And to start us off this morning, I wanted to invite you to to kind of try to move from the cosmic view that we've been taking of the story so far, particularly of the plagues, and try to zoom in on the ground level of what it would have been like to be present in Egypt for this story. And so to do that, I want to invite you again to imagine with me an Israelite family, a hypothetical Israelite family living in Egypt during the time of the plagues. We're going to make it a small family, a father, his wife, and uh, one son. We'll give them kind of classic ancient Hebrew names from this time period. So the dad will call Eleazar and we'll call his son Shemai. And imagine that this is a, a faithful Israelite family. The prophet Ezekiel actually tells us later in the Bible that during the Egyptian slavery, not many of the Israelites were faithful to Yahweh. Many of them turned to worship the gods of Egypt. But we'll say this is a faithful family. And this father has been passing on the stories of their forefathers to his son Shemai. And one day, after the sixth plague, they've seen boils all over the Egyptians. This is, you know, just one of of another plague after plague after plague. And even though the land of Goshen, where the Israelites live, has been spared from the worst of the plagues, it's still a scary time. And Eleazar can tell that his son is feeling anxious, feeling nervous about the plagues. So to kind of give him confidence in God, he tells him a familiar story that he's told him tons of times. He says, Shemai, have I ever told you the story of Abraham and his son Isaac? And Shemai, who's heard the story like 30 times, says, yes, Abba, you have told me the story of Abraham and Isaac. And he says, well, one more time then. Our father Abraham was given a a miraculous son, Isaac. And through that one son, his only son, God said that he would create a whole nation. And that's who we are. And he said that through that offspring, he would bless the entire world. But one day, God told Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son who you love, and sacrifice him in the place that I will show you. So Abraham, even though he was filled with fear, he knew that all of the firstborn belonged to God. And so he went the three days journey to the mountain that God showed him and prepared to sacrifice his son. And as they walked together up the mountain, Isaac asked his father, he said, Abraham, Abba, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? And do you know what Abraham told him? Shemai says, yes, I know what he told him. He told him that God will provide the lamb. He says, yes, that's right. God will provide the lamb. And they reached the top of the mountain, and he laid his son upon the wood of the sacrifice, and as he prepared to watch his only son die, a voice spoke from above him and said, stop, and provided a ram. And so Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, Yahweh will provide. So you see, my son, even when you see all of this happening in Egypt and you see all of these plagues and it's terrifying, remember, God will provide. And sit there quietly for a minute. And then Shemai asks a question he's never asked about this story before. He says, Abba, I'm your only son. Would you sacrifice me if God asked you to? Eleazar thinks for a long time because he's taking the question seriously. He's quiet, and then he looks at his son and says, God will provide. God will provide. We don't know how many families like this there actually were in Egypt during this time. Because again, Ezekiel tells us many of them, most of them, were not faithful. But you have to imagine that as the plagues progressed throughout the land of Egypt, and they're seeing, as we talked about last week, the God of Israel, the one God of this tiny slave nation, is systematically 
dethroning all of the gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet. You have to imagine that little by little, the Israelites might have actually started to think, wow, this, this might actually happen. We might actually get freed from slavery. God might do what he told Moses he would do. So last week, we looked at the first six of the plagues. It's kind of the first half of the plagues. And um, I really encourage you to listen to that podcast if you weren't here. Isaac walked through how each of these plagues systematically targets a god or set of gods that were popular in Egypt and shows the god of Israel's mastery over that god. The other purpose that the plagues serve is to show that Pharaoh can't do his spiritual job in Egypt. See, in the eyes of the Egyptians, the Pharaoh was the incarnation of the god's present with them in Egypt. And a huge part of his job, his role in Egypt, was to hold back chaos and maintain order. The Egyptians had a word for this order. They called it ma'at. And as long as Pharaoh was doing his job, and as long as his magician priests were performing their rituals, and the religious system of Egypt was flowing the way it's supposed to, order ma'at would be maintained and chaos would be held back. But for the first six plagues, over and over again, chaos has been brought into Egypt and Pharaoh has been shown unable to do the role that he's supposed to do. And the gods of Egypt have been shown to be weak and unable to stop the God of Israel. Now, right before the last four plagues start, there's kind of this pause and summary statement where God makes his kind of ultimate goal known again. Now, remember, it's important for this series, when you read the word Lord in the Old Testament, and Lord is all capital letters, that's a stand-in for the name, the personal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. So this says, then Yahweh, this is Exodus 9, 13 through 17, then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Pause for a second here. At the very beginning, when Moses went to Pharaoh the first time, before there had been any plagues, Moses says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is like the height of kind of arrogance and looking down on the God of Israel. He says, who's Yahweh? I don't know who Yahweh is, and I'm not going to listen to him. And so here, these six plagues later, when the entire religious system of Egypt is in shambles, this would sound kind of different. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Hebrews. Pharaoh knows who he is now. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So he says, hey, if I wanted, if all I wanted to do was get Israel out of Egypt, I could have done it all at once. I could have struck every Egyptian down. But no, I'm doing it this way. In fact, I raised you up just for this purpose, to show you, to show Israel, and to show all the nations of earth who I am. And it works. Later on in the Old Testament, we see that by the time Israel arrives in Canaan, there are already Canaanite kings who have heard about the God of Israel and are scared because of stories about this exact event. So after this, the next three plagues come in pretty quick succession, and we're going to kind of breeze through this because I really want to focus our attention on the final plague. But these three plagues serve the same purpose that the last six did, to show that Pharaoh can't maintain ma'at, 
the order, the good order that he's supposed to, and the gods of Egypt can't stand before the God of Israel. So first, there is hail. Pharaoh is warned again. God causes hail like Egypt has never seen to fall and destroy crops and cause economic devastation. Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. This is a direct attack against the, the, the Egyptian sky god, or goddess rather, named Newt. The next plague, whatever's left from the hail gets eaten by locusts. God causes an east wind to spring up, carries this horrible plague of locusts into the land, and they eat whatever crops are left behind by the hail. But it's the third of these plagues, the ninth, the second to last plague, that really kind of brings home the point that God has been making. You see, if you're an Egyptian and you're seeing kind of all the different gods that you worship and revere get systematically one-upped by the God of Israel, in the back of your mind, you'd be thinking, yeah, but they can't, they can't stand against Amun-Ra, the sun god. He's the most powerful god we have. He's the creator god. He's the god who Pharaoh embodies on earth. And as long as that sun continues to rise, we know that Ra is in control. The Egyptians had an understanding of the kind of cycle of day and night that was highly symbolic. When the sun set in the evening, it symbolized the death, the temporary death of Ra. He would go down to the land of the dead, and it was, it was, he wanted to do this. It wasn't like he was being forced to die or something, but it was his cycle. He would go down to the land of the dead, symbolizing endings, seasonality, and things like that, and every morning he would rise again. And they would see the sun come up and know that there's creation, there is new life, Ra is still in control, he's risen from the land of the dead. In the ninth plague, when God says so, Amun-Ra goes to the land of the dead and can't come back out for three days. I can't think of a more direct and more dramatic challenge to the gods of Egypt than to take the chief god and kill him for three days. He's stuck in the land of the dead. And until Yahweh says so, he can't come back out. And there's light in the land of Goshen where the Israelites live, just like many of the other plagues. Israel is spared from this one. But make no mistake, if you lived in this place at this time, you know what this means. The chief god of Egypt finally has been overcome by the god of Israel. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh has refused to relent time after time after time, even after all of these warnings, And the text kind of slows down, and at the beginning of chapter 11, God says what he's about to do. Yahweh said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This makes it crystal clear that God never intended or expected that the first nine plagues would result in Israel's freedom from slavery. And he said that, remember? He said, if I wanted to, I could have got them out in one fell swoop, but I'm doing all of this to show the nations who I am. Here he says, those first nine plagues, it's like they were probationary. They were opportunity after opportunity for repentance. But this one, this final plague, after this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him what the plague will be. This is Exodus 11, four through eight. So Moses said, thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. 
so that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. This plague is is the final nail in the coffin of proving Pharaoh's powerlessness to protect his people. The line of succession in Egypt is a really big deal. Because remember, it's Pharaoh's job to maintain order and to hold back chaos. So if for the moment that there's not a Pharaoh in power, Egypt is in extreme danger. It's a very vulnerable moment. So the process of handing power over to the successor, to your firstborn son, was handled with extreme care. It was done really carefully. It was a big deal whenever it happened. And so here, God is saying, I've already left the religious system of Egypt in shambles with the first nine plagues. Now Egypt will be thrown into chaos for the foreseeable future. But Pharaoh still doesn't relent. And so the punishment of Pharaoh's consistent rebellion, consistent refusal to humble himself is going to be horror for his people. The next two verses. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders, the last nine plagues, before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And before we move on, we got to talk about Pharaoh's heart for a minute. How many of you find this to be a confusing and difficult part of the Exodus story, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Oh, never mind, we won't talk about it. Oh, for, we'll talk about it for you, Jack. Um, <laughs> depending on your kind of theological leanings, especially if you've been a Christian a while and you're really familiar with these stories, so no big deal if you haven't, no big deal if this isn't something you've ever even thought about before. But if you're really familiar with these stories, then depending on your kind of theological disposition, you're going to be drawn to one of two versions of how this story can be told. One is that Pharaoh is a bad guy who makes his own bad decisions, hardens his own heart, won't let Israel go, and the punishment that he gets is because of those choices. The other version of the story is God imposes upon Pharaoh against his will a hard heart such that he doesn't get to decide. God hardens his heart. God makes the decision. And so the people of Israel are going, to be, are going to stay there while the plagues drag out so that God displays his power before the nations. The hard part, and the good part, I think, about this story is that it demonstrates the fact that this question, which is one of the biggest debates in all of Christianity, not about Pharaoh specifically, but about the responsibility of human beings compared to the ultimate sovereign power of a God who is in control of history, that question is one of the biggest in all of Christianity, in all of theology. And this story illustrates the fact that it is not an easy, simple, yes or no, easily systematized thing. For starters, because the text says both things. Did you know that? There are three times where the text says explicitly that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There are five times where the text says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it's ambiguous who's responsible for that. And then there's 10 times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But just to make matters more complicated, the biblical authors are really comfortable skipping secondary causes and just telling the story using only first causes. I'll tell you what I mean by that. The first cause of the hail that fell in Egypt at Plague 7 was God, right? What's the text say? God caused hail to fall in the land of Egypt. What happens when hail falls? Do we have any meteorologists in the room who can explain it for us? Okay, I had to ask that first because... uh, 
and now I know that there's no one who can question the thing I'm about to say because I'm not 100% sure about it. Hail falls because there are rainstorms with really strong wind updrafts that are carrying droplets of water higher and higher to colder and colder temperatures until those water droplets freeze into hailstones. Those hailstones float around up there, gathering more and more water, bigger and bigger chunks of ice, until they're heavy enough to fall down through the updrafts and fall onto the earth as hail. That's how hail is formed, I think. Again, no meteorologist to question me. The author of the Bible doesn't say that's what happens when hail falls on Egypt. That's a secondary cause. What the author of the Exodus says is God caused hail to fall in Egypt. Now, the mechanism by which God did that is almost certainly a rainstorm, kind of like the one I described. But the Bible's perfectly fine jumping right past the secondary causes. So it's not as cut and dry as just to say, hey, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so it must have just been a direct imposition on this person against his will, right? We don't know what mechanisms are used in that. We don't know if Pharaoh is someone who consistently makes rebellious, arrogant choices to maintain power and develops the type of character to the point where, man, he can't make another decision. You guys know how that is, right, in our lives and smaller issues. When you've reached the point of no return and you're just, you're on the path you're on. And you don't know at what point you lost the ability to decide what you were going to do, but you know now you don't even have a say in it anymore. Ask another question. Is Pharaoh, or the Pharaoh who precedes him, the one who commanded that all the sons of Israel be thrown in the Nile, are they presented like basically fair-minded, nice guys who could maybe have been talked into releasing Israel from slavery? Is that how they're presented by the text? No, they're not. They're presented as, this Pharaoh in particular, as an arrogant, hard-hearted person with a firm grip on the control of the nation, somebody whose character has made it such that he was never going to let Israel go. Now, having said that, I absolutely believe that God is 100% in control of what's happening in Egypt. He says that. He says, this is why I raised you up, Pharaoh. This is why you're in this place at this time, so that I can show the world who I am. So I can, it says, multiply my wonders against you so that the world can see who's really God. So again, there's two, quest- there's two kind of ways to tell the story. One, Pharaoh was a hard-hearted man who God put in this place at this time because he, would, he knew he would never let Israel go. But he did that of his own free will. The other option is that God imposed upon Pharaoh his own hardness of heart as a consequence for his evil and his rebellion. My suggestion, my encouragement to you is that whichever one of those stories you find yourself naturally drawn to, allow the text to pull you towards the middle. Because if you start paying attention to this theme in the Bible, you're going to see over and over again that the biblical authors are completely convinced that God is in control of history. Nothing happens without God say so. And yet, God holds human beings accountable for the decisions that they make, such that God can say things like, Pharaoh, you refuse to humble yourself before me, so now this is happening. Pharaoh, you're still exalting yourself over my people, so now this is happening. It's a complex, nuanced issue. And somehow, beyond kind of the, you know, the, the peak of our ability to understand God and his nature, we have to understand that human beings are held responsible for what we do, and yet there is a God who is sovereignly in control of history. And at this point with the character Pharaoh, man, 
The casting has been done perfectly. The scripting has been done perfectly. Pharaoh, by whatever mechanism, is doing exactly what God wants him to do. And as a result of his rebellion and arrogance and refusal to submit to God, one of the worst tragedies in all of Egyptian history is going to fall on the Egyptian people because their king refuses to protect them. And God is going to provide a means for his people, Israel, to escape from that judgment, but it's not going to be like the other ones. See, every other time when there's a plague that falls only on Egypt and not on Israel, it just happens automatically. This time, God says, I want you to do something very specific, and I want you to do it in a very specific way. He says, each family is going to take a spotless, unblemished lamb. And if your family's too small to need its own lamb, you can partner up with your neighbors, but you're going to take a spotless, unblemished lamb. You're going to drain the blood from this lamb. You're going to roast it over fire, eat it with bitter greens and unleavened bread. All of these things have powerful symbolism that we don't have time to get into, but you can Google it later. You don't have to Google it later. Talk about it in your small groups. And you're going to eat this meal in a particular way. You're going to eat it with your staff in your hand, with your belt tightened, and with your sandals on. Why? Because you're going to eat it like you're getting out of here. Because you're getting out of here. That's the point. And now at the end of this, you're going to take some of the blood that you drained from the lamb and take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and mark the doorways of your houses and the lintel of your house. And if you do that, this is what will happen. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. This is key. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. That's what he's been doing this whole time. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When hail fell only in Egypt, God just did it automatically. This time, when God wants to shelter his people, he does it through the blood of a lamb. And the message is clear. Whatever death is coming to Egypt that night, because God says, I'm going to cut right through the mightiest military power on planet Earth with no resistance, no opposition, none whatsoever. And the judgment that's coming on Egypt, guess what? Without protection, it's coming on you also. It's a sobering thought. Should be for everyone in the room. Israel, just by nature of being Israel, isn't exempt from this. It's a very early and very direct illustration of substitution. Every house in Egypt on that night is going to have death in it. The Israelite firstborn sons will only be protected by the substitutionary death of a spotless lamb. The only thing that can protect them is the blood of a lamb. So I want you again to to imagine Eleazar and Shemai on this night, picking the lamb. There's only three of them, so they probably would have partnered up with another family that lived near them. And they, they select really carefully the spotless lamb. They slaughter the lamb. They cook the lamb. They eat the lamb. And at every step of that process, Eleazar is looking at the lamb and thinking, my son will live because this lamb dies. This lamb is going to take care of whatever debt is owed. So my son may live because this lamb dies. After dinner, he takes his son Shemai, and they go out to the door. They take the blood of the lamb. He dips the hyssop in, and he shows his son what he's doing. He says, look, son, I'm marking the doorway because just like Abraham, God has provided. 
I'm just like Abraham. God is sparing my firstborn son. God is providing a lamb for me. And so remember again, my son, that God provides. Go back into the house. Shemai goes to bed. And one of the most difficult to read moments of the Old Testament happens. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve Yahweh as you have said. Remember, he has gone from who is Yahweh to get out of here and go serve Yahweh. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. God has finished his judgment on the gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. This is incredibly difficult to stomach. It's difficult to read, especially for us living in a place and time where we are very shielded from death. A lot of our friends around the world are much more comfortable with death than we are. But especially for us, and I think for anyone, this is a difficult thing to read. And it should be difficult to read. Because any time you see the ultimate effects of sin play out before your eyes, it is a horrible thing to see. From Genesis to Revelation, we are told that the wages of sin is what? Death. What is the result of rebellion against God? It's death. Pharaoh has had nine opportunities to submit to God, plague after plague. If he had submitted after the blood in the Nile, there would have been no frogs in Egypt. If he had submitted after the frogs, there would have been no flies in Egypt. On and on and on. If he had submitted after the darkness, after Ra went to the place of the dead for three days, this wouldn't have happened. Now, God knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen. But the responsibility for his people's protection sits on Pharaoh's shoulders. And again, remember, for Israel, they hadn't been faithful to God either. Most of them hadn't. And on the night when this happens, without the blood of the lamb, they were in just as much danger as every house in Egypt was. And so it's almost like God has, has scrolled forward in time and compressed into this one moment like a microcosm of judgment day, that, that the wages of sin are being unleashed on this people group all in one moment. But make no mistake, it doesn't usually look this obvious, it doesn't usually look this terrifying, but this is always the result of rebellion against God and of putting your trust in false idols, false gods that can't protect you. But Israel is given a way out at the cost of the blood of the Lamb. So Israel walks out of Egypt. We're going to talk more about this next week because, believe it or not, Pharaoh is still not done rebelling and refusing to submit to God. But Israel walks out of Egypt. Over a thousand years go by, and during that time, Passover is celebrated year after year. Better during some periods of biblical history than others, but by the time of Jesus, this is still a festival and feast that is practiced yearly by faithful Jews. Now, Jesus of Nazareth arrives in Jerusalem, and at the time of the Passover, he does what every faithful Torah-observant Jew would have done. He says, let's have a Passover meal. 
This is Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Jesus sends his disciples to get together the stuff for the Passover meal and they sit down and, and Jesus goes so wildly off script with this Passover that he intentionally changes it forever for the rest of history. See, Passover by this point had become very scripted. It was very, um, there was exact symbolism attributed to each of the elements of the meal. There are specific things that people are supposed to say. Usually there would be what was called the presider. He's kind of typically the head of the household. He's like the master of ceremonies. But all the different people involved have different roles to play and different things they say. How many of you have participated in the Passover Seder meal at some point? It's awesome. If you ever get the opportunity to do so, you should take it. Jesus stands up as the presider, picks up the top piece of the matzah, the unleavened bread, and holds it up. There's a specific thing that he as the presider is supposed to say at this point. He's supposed to say, and everyone at the table would have known this, he's supposed to say, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread that represents all of our suffering in Egypt, all of our suffering in the wilderness. This is the bread of the affliction of our people. That's what it's supposed to be. To say anything different would be like if you were at a birthday party and someone lit the candles, started singing happy birthday, and then halfway through started changing the lyrics. There wouldn't be a person in the room who wouldn't be like, that's not how happy, like we all know how happy birthday goes. That's not what you're supposed to say. Jesus is supposed to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Here's what happens instead. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread that's supposed to be the bread of their affliction. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body given for you. It's like all of the suffering of God's people is going to be summed up. And instead of being eaten as the symbolic meal, it's going to be put on Jesus. Then he says, do this in remembrance of me. For 1,500 years, you guys, the Passover had been done in remembrance of something very specific, Yahweh's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. That's what it was done in remembrance of, and there's no confusion about that. Jesus says, from here on out, you do this in remembrance of me, of the ultimate rescue from slavery, of the ultimate exodus. He goes on. There's four different cups in the Passover meal that all have different things you're supposed to say. Jesus says this instead. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup, this wine, is my blood. Drink it. If you know what Passover is, if you remember the story from thousands of years ago of your forefathers, and you hear about blood poured out, for you, what do you think of? You think of something that's strangely absent from the meal. Now we have to speculate a little bit here because the text isn't very specific. It doesn't go out of its way to say what I'm about to say, but it, you'll notice in none of the gospel accounts of the Passover meal is there ever mentioned a lamb. No lamb that we know of. And so if you're one of the apostles and you're sitting at the table, you're going like, hey, this is the weirdest Passover meal I've ever been a part of. The rabbi doesn't know the, the script. 
He's changing things on the fly, and there's no lamb. Where is the lamb? You can imagine a clever apostle. So it's not going to be Peter. They'll say it's John. Just kidding, Peter. You can imagine him thinking, well, he said the bread that's supposed to be the bread of our affliction is his body, and he said that the blood, or the wine, is his blood. So could it be that there is a lamb at the table? And then maybe, again, we're speculating here, but maybe some of their minds flashed back to a moment at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Jesus is seen by John the Baptist and John the Baptist says of him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, by the way, prophet, sees Jesus and he goes, I get it. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Passover Lamb. There are clues to this effect all over the New Testament, by the way. You know why John 19 says none of Jesus' bones are broken? Because according to Passover regulations, you don't break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. Matthew 27 says that Jesus dies exactly at twilight. Why is it important that he dies exactly at twilight? Because according to Passover regulations, that's the time you kill the Passover lamb. Peter and the author of Hebrews both called Jesus spotless and unblemished. Why those words, those particular words? Because that's how the Passover lamb had to be. Paul's not subtle at all. In 1 Corinthians, he just straight up says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slain. The New Testament authors want you to see what John saw. They want you to see this is the ultimate lamb of God. Every other lamb that was supposed to be covering for sins, that was supposed to be deliverance from slavery in Exodus, all of them were just pointing forward to this lamb. Abel's lamb was enough for Abel. Abraham's ram was enough for Isaac. The Passover lamb was enough for all of the firstborn on that one night in Egypt. The lamb of the day of atonement was enough for the entire nation of Israel for a year. Jesus takes away the sin of the entire world forever. That's what the author of Hebrews says. He says somehow Jesus is both sacrifice and high priest. And unlike these sacrifices in the Old Testament that have to happen over and over and over again, Jesus is one and done. And those who are covered by the blood of this lamb are safe forever. The twist on the Exodus story is so profound because Jesus is not just the lamb. He's also the firstborn. You thought about that? When God accomplishes the rescue of Israel from Egypt, he does it while sparing their firstborn sons. When he accomplishes the ultimate exodus of all humanity from slavery to sin and death, he does not spare even his own firstborn son. Jesus at the cross is more like the firstborn of Egypt than he is like the firstborn of Israel. He dies to accomplish rescue from slavery. God, the Father, takes Jesus to the top of a mountain and in perfect unity with his obedient son, he places his son on the wood of the sacrifice. But unlike Abraham, there's no voice to tell him stop. God knows exactly what he's doing. And again, in perfect unity, the firstborn son becomes the Passover lamb 
for all of creation. And so, the only method of delivery, the only way out, is to sit under the blood of that great substitute. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus at the cross accomplishes the ultimate defeat of supernatural power, right? All the gods of Egypt get destroyed in the Exodus. All the gods of all the cosmos are put under subjection to God, to Jesus. They're all sitting under his feet forever. He's also the Passover lamb providing the blood needed to stand in the place of sinners like you and me. But if you're like me, you have a really hard time for a variety of reasons with that. Like, we only have 45 minutes, so we can't, like, talk about the theology of this for forever, right? So you probably, if you're like me again, you probably have a million questions. You're like, well, how does it work? And what if, like, what do I have to do? And, like, what question after question after question could pile up. And you could think, well, there's this one inconsistency here, and there's something that kind of worries me about this part of it. And, and this is how I am, by the way. And in the back of your mind, while you have those millions and millions of questions, you're telling yourself, what if, just on the basis of the fact that I have all these questions, what if it's not going to work for me? What if my faith is so weak, so shot full of holes of doubt? What if my faith is so unstable that the blood of Jesus won't cover me? That's how I feel sometimes. And so as the ushers bring forth communion, no surprise there, I want us to look one more time through the imaginary eyes of Eleazar, the faithful Jew at the time of the Exodus. This is borrowing an image, by the way, from a brilliant New Testament scholar, Don Carson. Imagine Eleazar puts the blood on the doorpost, tells his son, see, God has provided. Takes his son, puts him to bed, prays for him, smile on his face, walks out the front door of his house, and the second he's out of earshot of his son, he just lets out the longest, most shuddering sigh of terror and anxiety you can ever imagine. He thinks to himself, my son's going to die tonight. What if it doesn't work? And he's just pacing, thinking horrible thoughts about this night, and he sees his neighbor, Simeon, sitting by a fire. And Simeon, you have to imagine, is not like one of the faithful Israelites like Eleazar. Simeon's been worshiping the gods of Egypt until the plague started. He's only started to kind of get himself in line recently. And so Eleazar goes and sits by him, and he goes, Simeon, are you scared tonight? Simeon goes, why would I be scared? He goes, well, you've seen all the plague, like you've seen what God's been doing. There's just been plague after plague, and it's been really terrifying to watch. And what, a, what about tonight? I mean, God's going to come through, and, and what, if, what if our sons die? And Simeon goes, our sons die? Didn't you do the thing that Moses said? Didn't you put the blood on the thing? And Eleazar goes, yeah, I did what Moses said. I put the blood on my doorpost. I paid attention. But what if it doesn't work? Simeon goes, well, Moses is God's prophet. Like, God told him exactly what to do. It's going to be fine. And Eliezer says, yeah, but what if Moses misheard something? Or what if I wasn't paying attention? Or what if, like, I, I did something wrong tonight? Like, what if I didn't quite put the blood in all the right places? Or, like, I didn't get enough coverage of the doorposts? Or what if, what if my doubts that I'm having right now make God look at my doorway and say, this isn't good enough? See, Simeon, you've got four strong sons. I've only got one. What if God takes him from me? 
Simeon goes, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I'm not scared at all. I'm actually kind of excited because we're getting out of Egypt tonight. They sit side by side quietly for a while, and they both go to bed. Simeon is like some of you guys. He goes into his house. He's full of confidence, flops down on the bed. He's asleep within 10 seconds. I'm envious of all of you who are like that, by the way. Eleazar goes home, goes really quiet into his son's room, kneels by his bed, and just spends hours praying silently, terrified. Finally leaves his son's room, and he goes and he sits right in the doorway, just inside, because Moses said, don't go outside your house. He sits just inside the doorway, terrified, completely sure that at midnight his son is going to die. Let me ask you a question. Whose son died that night? Whose son? Neither of them. They were both saved. You know why? Because the salvation of the firstborn in Egypt was not on the basis of the strength or quality of their faith. It was 100% on the basis of the blood of the lamb, period. End of story. It didn't matter how much faith Eleazar had. Was he sitting under the blood of the lamb? Because if he was, then his son was protected. And so it is with you, Christian. Man, you might be like me. You might be one of those Christians who's going, I believe in you, Jesus, but help my unbelief because, man, I've got a million questions. And sometimes the questions seem bigger than my confidence do. And, man, I just, I'm not sure about any of this, but I trust you. You are saved on the basis of the blood of the Lamb, period. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Now, let me put it this way. Here's a modern example. Imagine there are two men who are flying from L.A. to New York. One of them does this every single day. He's not nervous at all. In fact, he's bored. He gets on the plane, puts his headphones on, he's immediately asleep. The other guy has never flown before in his life, but he has to get to New York. I forgot which direction they're flying, but go with it. He's shaking the whole time he gets on the plane. He sits down in his seat trembling. He's praying. He's sure he's going to die. He's checking behind panels to make sure wiring is right. He's asking questions about the pilot's qualifications. Which one of them arrives safely in Los Angeles? Both of them. Because the only question is, can the plane get you there? Not how much confidence do you have in the plane? And so again, brothers and sisters, I am, I am the Christian who is, I'm on the plane, okay? And some days that's as good as it's getting for me. I've got a million questions about how the plane works. I've got a million questions about the qualifications of the pilot. I'm pulling off electrical panels to make sure nothing looks funky in there. That's what it's like for me to be a Christian. But you know what? If the plane can get me there, the plane can get me there, and I'm on board. So know, however much doubt you feel, if you have placed yourself under the blood of the Lamb, then you are safe, not because of the quality of your faith, but because of the object of your faith. So some of you, you're full of confidence. Praise God. We need you in this church. We need your voices. Some of you are like me, and some days, man, you are filled with doubt. We need your voices. Some of you are still sitting outside, and you're looking and going like, I think I'm on board, but I'm, I've got a lot of questions. Let me invite you to bring your questions inside with us. You're invited in with your questions. You can have a million questions about how this thing works. I do. Point your faith in the right direction. 
Bring it as riddled with holes as it might be and know that if you sit under the blood of the lamb, you are safe, you are rescued from slavery with your questions. Let's stand together. It's hard to clap with the stuff in your hands, I understand. (laughs) On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus instituted a new Passover. He said, this, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you. I'm going to pray. We're going to have prayer counselors at the front here. If you need to be prayed for, if you need to say, hey, I want to come in the doorway, I want to come inside. I want to be under the covering of the blood of Jesus. No matter how many questions I still have, I want to ask them from inside the plane and not sit outside the plane looking at it, asking the questions. 